Welcome to Innovation Hub, I'm Kara Miller. We all know that over time, some jobs get taken away by automation, assembly lines that used to be stuffed with people, or after a while, stuffed with robots. People get pink slips, you've heard the story, and in fact, here's a version of it. The kind of change people want is not the kind that we're getting. We're not living in a low change environment. There are these science fiction technologies coming at us. The economy is being reshaped. There's a lot of change going on. That's Andrew McAfee, one of my favorite guests of all time on this show, talking to me during what felt like an inflection point in history the week Donald Trump was elected. I think what people might actually be yearning for is nostalgia, is a return to some flavor of good old days where there wasn't so much change and when the economy was full of those great middle-class American jobs, which happened in factories, in offices full of clerks, and really built up the American middle class. I sense a yearning to go back to that period, and unfortunately, that's just not going to happen. But the last few years haven't just been about people getting pink slips as jobs get automated away, though there's been some of that. Indeed, what we've seen recently is strange. The story of work got more complicated, and the notion that computers and robotics and AI take people out of the equation, that turns out to have a big old footnote. It's a significant misconception, actually. And I think the challenge is that when we talk about automating jobs away, we should be talking about parts of our job get automated away. Mary Gray has spent years studying the people behind our devices. And I don't mean the millionaires who designed your iPhone, your Chromebook. I'm talking about the people who help you order takeout, who help you search for things, who fiddle around with your Facebook feed. Only you've never seen them, and you're probably never going to meet. But if you think about how many jobs and how many of the things we do across sectors involve making a snap judgment, making a decision on the spot, or really having to take some time explaining something to someone or trying to understand what somebody's communicating, those are precisely the places that artificial intelligence and automation in general fall short. What does that mean? So, okay, let's say sometime today, maybe tomorrow, you flag something on Facebook as inappropriate. Because clearly it is inappropriate. It's obvious to you. Nobody should be posting stuff like that. Who is adjudicating that claim of inappropriateness? A computer? Likely not. There is a significant amount of human involvement in what we come to think of as just something automatic, like a web search or ordering food or even getting a medical diagnosis and, and looking at say, you know, some modeling that's produced an idea of, of what kind of disease you, you might have. Mary Gray is the author, along with Siddhar Suri, of the book Ghost Work, How to Stop Silicon Valley from Building a New Global Underclass. And she argues that what she calls ghost work done by an unseen army of people isn't going away. As computers get smarter, it's actually getting bigger. And she's worried currently she's expecting, that it's going to change many of our jobs soon. Because we've entered an era in which computing has not caught up with all the fancy things we ask computers to do. Which is why, when we wait for things to load and joke that the computer's thinking, we're on to more than we know. If you think about how many things you might post online that have a clear 
label, like literally are tagging it as that's my friend or that's my sister. That's all material. It's raw material to be able to train artificial intelligence. It's, it's basically treated as training data. But in any situation where you actually need a person to make a decision about, well, is that cat a Himalayan long hair or is that a, you know, a, a hairless cat? There's a degree in which just a little dose of a person's capacity to make that decision quickly can boost training data so that it doesn't have to, you know, doesn't have to dwell on something that's so obvious to a person. Gray is an anthropologist who works at Microsoft Research and in 2020 won a MacArthur Genius Grant for her work. She says there are armies of people involved in making the internet run, and these folks are basically engaged in super-fast, often bite-sized gig work, categorizing things, censoring things. Each task might earn them a few pennies, and then they're back out again, looking for the next internet glitch that needs some help. Often they're just being shown the word or the image, and they don't know is that something that's being said among a small group of people who actually are close friends, and somebody's angry and, and, you know, hit the flag button and it's kind of, you know, calling somebody to the, to the schoolyard because they're mad. Or is that something much more nefarious, uh, much more violent? Can you give me um, – I mean, you write a lot about, like, who these people are who are taking – who are sort of this, this human intermediary for something we think is, like, that's all on the computer. There's no humans involved in that. Who are these people? Um, can you just, I, I know people live all over the world, but can you give like one or two examples of people that maybe you met or wrote about and like what they were, what they were doing during the day and what they were working on? Yeah. I mean, that was actually my favorite part about the research is that the mission of this research was really to understand, so who are the people who do this on-demand form of knowledge work. You know, they're office workers in many ways, but their their office is their home. So, you know, the, the folks who really stand out for me, we were comparing workers in the United States and India. So meeting folks like Kamala, who is um, somebody who works here in the United States, she's bilingual, she really enjoys being able to play with words. She's she's quite a puzzler. Um, she also loves dance. She's she's really her her primary mission is to do choreography and particularly with young kids. And she knows that she has constraints on how much she can make her choreography into a full-time form of income, that that's not necessarily something she can turn into a full-time job. But she also was pretty clear when we're when we were um, interviewing her and, and talking with her about her day-to-day that she doesn't want it to be the only source of her income. She actually really worries that if she was trying to turn that into the only form of income she has, that it would kill her joy for it. She was pretty clear. She had a pretty limited capacity of like how, how much dance can you do with little kids before it's just too exhausting. So mm-hmm. she was doing this other form of work, captioning and translation work. So she was part of a group we studied called Amara. And she would do video translation and captioning work. She'd look at a video. Often it was a documentary film that needed to be translated into multiple languages. And she would take a piece of that film and she'd create 
translations and captioning for the video. That's actually very hard to do in any real culturally sensitive way. So her day was moving from those gigs, doing translation and captioning work, to being able to work with little kids and doing choreography. And on the other side of the planet are people like Kala. She was a at that point, a full-time um, mom taking care of two young kids who were going through their studies. And she, in a previous life, had been a software engineer. So for her, it was really about being able to keep a handle on the world of technology to feel her expertise and being able to work with, um, with information systems. A lot of her work was doing the kind of content moderation that we were just talking about, where she, for her, this was about keeping the internet clean for her kids. So mm. she found a lot of meaning in doing that work. Often she was tasked with looking at words and images. She was very clear that they might be um, potentially charged or sexually mm -hmm. explicit. And she joked there were sometimes she would call her sons because at that point they were preteens. She'd call them over and she'd ask them as a phrase like chick flick, a, a bad a bad word. You know, right. so it's a really good example of it's the kind of work that often means people are investing in what they feel is important about doing that work, but it is not by any means the thing that gives them all of the meaning in their life. They're really organizing this work around their lives. I mean, I think people will wonder, since these this is like gig work and stuff, uh, is that are these people um, are they being exploited? Are they? I mean, you kind of you talk about Kamala and Kala's people who seem to like the thing that they're doing. Are they being? I don't know. Are they being paid fairly? Are they being taken advantage of? Like, where would you? How do you think about that question? Yeah, it's a it's a really hard question because we were studying this world of work from the vantage point of workers who we met through several different platforms. So we had the benefit of being able to see who are these companies that are brokering this form of digital labor. What kind of work conditions do they present? How typical are these work conditions? And the reality is this is a completely unregulated world of work. This is the challenge, that this is a world mm. of work that is contract. It's global. There's no single office. There's no single employer of record. There are no real requirements to treat anybody doing this work fairly. And in fact, in the book, we talk about the potential algorithmic cruelty of being in the position of taking on a gig like this and perhaps working for a broker for a platform company that feels no sense of obligation or care for a worker and can quite literally lock them out of their account and never have to mm. talk to them again. So importantly, the folks we talked with, they're quite clear on what is risky about this world of work. For many of them, there are not many options other than doing this form of work, trying to figure out how to make it work for them, or looking for what are typically service entry-level jobs, that, that's the majority of where job growth is at, is in the service sector. So their choices are be in a long commute to a service job, 
and mm-hmm. be locked into someone else scheduling you and perhaps doing something you never really wanted to be doing or try to find a way into this world of work and move towards the platforms that provide clarity, some transparency about what are the terms of this work. Um, how many people would you say do this kind of like behind the scenes ghost work? So anybody who tells you they know the answer to that question is not being honest um, because okay. we don't have a global bureau labor of statistics for contract labor. But literally anything that can at least in part be sourced, so you're finding the people doing the work, scheduled, billed, managed, shipped through uh, this mash of software called application programming interfaces and the internet can participate in this world of work. So it's not a niche job. It's actually a a dismantling of full-time employment. It's a way of reorienting all of us to task-based job opportunities. And so a basic estimate is that we have millions of people who are participating in this work. We just don't know how much of it they're doing and how long they stay. And when you think about a a big company like a Facebook, a Google, an Amazon, um, I assume they are using large numbers of people to do like this to do work for them. Yes. I mean, they're piece by piece kind of work. Yes. It is our century's version of piecework to some degree. I mean, and there's just no denying that right now, because it is so nascent, it's a novel form of work that's only existed for a little less than 15 years. We haven't had this kind of connectivity. You have to have decent internet. You have to have enough computer skills. And you also have to have the the need, the demand for people managing a lot of data, making sense of a lot of data. That That need, that demand came with the rise of turning to big data as a way to to solve a host of problems. It's it's found across a lot of different industries. So there's no evidence that this is going to go away because we, for every system we try to push to automate, we need people in the mix to be able to mm. develop that training data and also step in when that artificial intelligence or that moment of automation falls short. I'm Kara Miller. I'm speaking with Mary Gray. She's the co-author of the book, Ghost Work, and recipient of a MacArthur Genius Grant. We're going to be back to talk more in just a minute about how this sort of work could start to spread into all of our jobs soon. And at the end of this week's show, a little bit of a bittersweet message from me. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Innovation Hub, I'm Kara Miller. In my house over the last few years, there's been a lot, and I really wanna underscore a lot, of Wizard of Oz viewing. And there's a scene in The Wizard of Oz about work that's hidden. So work that's done in the frantic hope that the end product is gonna seem effortless. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. The great end, Oz has spoken. Who are you? 
Oh, I, I, I am the great and powerful Wizard of Oz. Today, we are often amazed at the great and powerful things our gadgets can do, except there are lots and lots of folks behind the curtain. So actually, the most important thing to take away is not one person, it's many people. Mary Gray is an anthropologist. She's a researcher at Microsoft and the co-author of the book, Ghost Work, How to Stop Silicon Valley from Building a New Global Underclass. So the brilliance of this approach is that it's taking what's called a weighted result. It can instantly bring people to a, to a task because it's distributed. I mean, it's basically, it's, it's on your computer. So you can have many people weighing in to say, I'm not sure about that. Or, yep, that's exactly what we thought it was. And so it's drawing on what we used to call the wisdom of the crowd and getting that, that weighted result where you basically have the majority saying, here's an action you should take. So okay. you can apply that to content moderation. It's really obvious. With a search result, having people weigh in on something like a website and being able to say, yep, that website actually is misrepresenting the content or when I see the name Obama, I should be linking it to this, at the time, young Illinois senator. Like before mm-hmm. somebody's famous, there's, the odds are pretty good that there's not a lot of clarity about, well, who is it that you're trying to search for? What are you trying to find? Okay. So for every moment you use a search engine, you're both teaching the search engine what's relevant to you. But you're also generating some, some information about what's, what's not useful because you kept going like three pages deep into a search result looking for what you wanted to find. Well, the, the brilliance of any technology company that's, that's trying to offer you search is that they then take all those moments that somebody didn't find what they were looking for. They're picking that up through what's called telemetry. They can see you went three pages in to the search mm-hmm. result. And they're saying there's something missing. There's something wrong. Those search terms don't match the websites. So, And then they'll bring in a crew of folks who start evaluating like, oh, the search, really, those keywords, they should be connected to these these other sites. These are the, the sites people are looking for. You have a great, you tell this great story, which I think is just like another example. It's hard to sometimes think, where people would come into the equation. Um, But you tell this great story of a woman uh, like calling a ride hailing service on her phone. And she's like waiting for the person to come. And we've all, many of us have had that experience. It's the person six minutes away, then five, then four and all that. But during that time, somebody, I don't remember where it might've been in a different country, is looking at that person's photo the driver to figure out, is this driver going to go, like, is this the right person to go pick up the right, you know, this woman at the right place at the right time, all that. Right, right. And so it was part of a feature that Uber had in a few markets called real-time ID. And if you remember, there was a lot of concern about when somebody's calling a ride-hailing app, whether it's Uber or any of the others, how do you know as the as the passenger that that's your driver? And for real-time ID, 
what's a good way of making sure the consumer feels confident about the driver who might be picking them up, testing whether that driver is who they say they are. And one way to do that is have every driver's picture on file. Literally, drivers are taking photos of themselves, taking selfies, and that's that's on file. And so the easy way to confirm that driver's ID is, oh, they've got us, they've they've gotten an alert, they need to confirm their ID. If they take a picture of themselves in real time to confirm their ID and they're randomly mm-hmm. being asked to do that, very thorough system. If the picture on file does not match the picture they just took, maybe they have their mask on, maybe they have a beard today. You know, if those don't right. match, then the the system that um, that Uber came up with, and plenty of companies use similar systems for for security checks, quality assurance. The two images that don't match are immediately sent to a live. Think of them as a customer service rep because that's what mm-hmm. they're doing. They're basically serving the consumer by having them check those two pictures and make a decision literally on a timer. Decide right now, is this person the same person in both images? Right, right. And I think in the example you had, either the guy had grown a beard or he'd shaved his beard and the, and it just didn't match. And the question was, Look at the eyes. Look at other things. Look at the you know the hairline. Is this the same person, just with or without facial hair? Exactly. But otherwise, the same. Exactly. People are very good at making those those snap judgments. Everything about artificial intelligence is not built to make that snap judgment, because mm-hmm. it needs a lot of data to be able to generate what can be predictable. If you're ever making a decision that's not pretty predictable, or you just don't care about the outcome, then artificial intelligence is great. But as soon as you need a snap decision, like, is this driver who they say they are, you mm-hmm. you can move it to a person because they're going to be able to make a quick decision that's much more reliable than anything artificial intelligence can come up with. And that augmentation is actually a really good use of artificial intelligence. The problem is that right now we're building it as though it's always perfect, and we're also building it without any awareness that when it fails, there are people in the background who are making it work for us as consumers. You know, years ago, um, a roboticist told me, like, that self-driving cars were going to take a lot longer to take over the world than people were saying, um, because it's very hard to deal with sort of weird, unpredictable stuff that people do on the streets, Um, whereas, you know, self-driving cars want predictable stuff to be done. And I feel like, and I, I mean, I think back 10, 15 years, and people have been like, self driving cars are right around the corner. But if you've been out driving recently, you will know that that's not quite right. Um, and, <laughs> and I feel like there's something similar going on here that we're all so convinced, like technology is amazing, it can do all these things. And it's maybe not as advanced as we believe it is. It's the same problem. There are two things yeah. that are happening in the example of self-driving cars as the example of talking about what becomes ghost work. It's that we listen to the wrong people selling us that story. We're listening to folks who are often quite enthusiastic um, about the technologies and 
typically do not have the domain expertise, don't have the training to understand what's actually hard about the task they're trying to solve, what the, 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 the problem they're trying to solve. So take the example mm-hmm. of driving. The only way to make self-driving cars work is if you eliminate all the variables that might come in without a moment's notice that have no priors. So stick with that stick with that basic fact that the only way software learns how to take over from a person is if they can predict what would you do next. And driving, it can be really predictable, but you can't control sunlight going across your window shield. You really can't control any child or elderly person walking into the front of a car. Unless you build roads that completely exclude pedestrians and can mm-hmm. block out sun. So a driver, mm-hmm. you know, a cab driver, a good cab driver, they can get you to the airport even <laughs> even when there's construction that nobody really was planning for and there's some accident on uh, the main road. And that's precisely what we undervalue. We often dismiss as right. really quite sophisticated knowledge. That's That's cognitive work. Um, you know, you've been looking at AI for years. Do you feel like it's gotten better in the time that you've in the time that you've been looking at it? I.e., like it's squeezing more people out. It doesn't need as as many people to kind of grease the wheels, or are more people being brought in to help? More people are being brought in because we're building out artificial intelligence to do more things. I mean, it's wonderful that we can apply artificial intelligence to things like medical diagnostics. And we absolutely need to be thinking about that means we're going to have more diagnoses, more material to work with, to learn from, and we'll need even more analysis. So the thing we should be thinking about is that the more data you have, it doesn't Mm -hmm. tell you anything on its own. There's nothing self-evident mm-hmm. about data. It's it's mm-hmm. information. So you always need people to interpret that material, to do the analysis that help us understand is it is it useful or is it noise? And that's not a bad thing. Okay, so do, so it sounds like you think of this as in some ways the success of technology is that it's bringing more people in versus I mean, this is an extreme example, and it's different, but, you know, like the the obviously famous story of like Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes, where she's like, technology does this amazing thing, you know, analyzing your blood and really like behind the curtain, there are people right. analyzing your blood. Right. Um, right. Now, clearly, this is a story of like behind the curtain. There are a lot more people doing things with your Facebook feed than you know, and then you can understand. But it doesn't sound to me like you think that's um, so much... Uh, a trick as it is, like, or a scandal as it is, it's kind of the success of technology in some ways. I think it's the failure to communicate with society, with with people using these systems, how much we actually all depend on people to help us make sense of our digital lives and our digital selves. So what's disappointing is that This has so much capacity matching the human capacity for making really 
sophisticated but quick decisions or being able to communicate something challenging. It has so much possibility in the world of, say, telehealth. It has so much possibility for all the needs we have around education. It could be Mm. a way to be able to distribute so much more expertise. And the challenge to me is that up until now, it has been treated as a parlor trick. There's been too much investment in thinking, we're going to eventually automate the people out of this picture, and particularly the workers out of this picture, instead of fully coming to grips with people are actually core to the value of what's being offered here. We need to elevate and make sure their work conditions are in good order. Because it turns out this kind of cognitive work it means you have to be refreshed. You actually have to care about what you're doing, like Kamala and Kala. I mean, they mm-hmm. care about what they're doing. That's why they're so good at it. So, you know, the takeaway for me is that, yes, artificial intelligence is advancing. It's making its way into myriad parts of our lives. That will be a wholesale a tragedy if we don't, as a society, see this as work and work conditions that require us to be invested in what are the conditions under which somebody is handling the material I'm putting online? What are the conditions under which somebody's analyzing those materials for medical diagnostics? We, we have to care about that in the same way that we have to care about who's, who's handling our food. Because if we don't care about that, we all get sick, right? Okay, one last break here. We're going to talk more on the other side about remote health care, about having the folks who administer health care to us potentially distributed around the world. I'm Kara Miller. We'll be right back with more from Mary Gray. She's a co-author of the book Ghost Work. Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm continuing my conversation with Mary Gray. She's the co-author of Ghost Work and the recipient of a MacArthur Genius Grant. And she argues that as technology proliferates, so do the very often hidden people who that technology relies on. So the people who dip in and out of Facebook feeds, who help make sure your takeout order is understood, that your Uber driver matches their picture. We often have no idea that these people are how technology runs so smoothly, but they are. And Gray says, the weird web of tech and people just keeps getting bigger and bigger. Take, for example, healthcare. I feel probably most inspired by where it could be applied in health because it's already happening today. So, for example, if you are an elderly patient and you're living in your home, as more and more elderly people are, and you need to take your medication, but you don't have support to take that medication because you live in a rural town and there is no one who can come to your house and help you take your medication. The idea that you could have someone who is available to you, you could contact, and they would be able to walk you through, are you taking your medication correctly? Did you take it this morning? And connected to that moment of telehealth where somebody is tasked with knowing this person 
needs their medication, and we as a team can be supporting that person, that I don't have to be full-time in that person's town to be able to provide that help, that can be matched with last-mile delivery, which is effectively what we have now through online platforms to deliver our food. We could be coordinating care for people wherever they are, and we don't have to depend on everyone having to be in that location. We can figure out what could be accomplished by somebody on the other side of the planet who has expertise I need. Perhaps I have a rare disease or my parent has a rare disease and they need to be able to talk with someone who can speak to them or quite literally in their own language. You know, right. so the possibilities here are endless that you could have translation in the literal and cultural sense of what you need. And that could be matched to, oh, I need to organize somebody being able to come to the house to pick up my parent, to be able to go to a clinic that's a distance away. All of that is possible. But the, the important takeaway here is the job itself is not ghost work. The conditions where we pretend as though that person providing the support, taking the medication, or the person picking up the parent to get them to a clinic, when we pretend that that's not special or a part of their care, that's ghost mm -hmm. work. That's where we, we, we create ghost work conditions. And we get really invested in the medication and, you know, the doctor become the heroes in that story instead of the entire team it takes. Right. It, it does seem to imply, though, your vision is that the notion that millions of people have these little gigs will, it, it's, it seems like you see that as expanding out and out and out into more and more and more millions of people, which isn't to say necessarily those people will be paid poorly. If you're a doctor, you might be paid very well. But that doesn't mean that gig work won't expand out and out and out to encompass more and more people, that that's sort of the direction we're moving. That is literally the direction we've been going for 20 plus years. Ever okay. since the internet was put in offices and companies realized we can move all of our financial archiving requirements to another part of the world. So, you know, I'm an anthropologist. In many ways, that means I'm a pragmatist. I look at the world as it is and try to understand how are people making sense of this? And I try and understand what their sense of the world is so that we have a clearer idea of what are the possibilities? How are people able to navigate this world of work? Because this world of work economically is growing. So a company like Accenture is effectively building out a huge, vast world of contract labor to able, able to meet the, the customer demands of companies that absolutely have to have somebody on contract, on task, to be able to respond to correcting particular amounts of you know, editing materials, editing materials, doing content moderation, doing event planning, you name it. Every bit of our information economy runs on these tasks and the thing that this new approach has brought to the table is breaking apart a day job and distributing it to many people. Do you feel like governments, either ours or, or any governments, uh, 
see they do they see the writing on the wall here do they understand what's happening do they think like no everybody works nine to five it's all exactly the same as it was in 1972 i mean where are they oh my gosh uh this is the scary part is i think we have ample evidence that most governments do not understand how technology works if you watch most of our hearings of technology leaders brought in front of our, con- our congressional members, it's, it's not obvious to me that our leadership understands how technology works, particularly when it comes to the workplace, because most of what we've all been listening to and we've been sold is that robots are around the corner. They're going to take everybody's jobs. So right, 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 right. we're just at the beginning. And this is why I'm like, oh, you know, I'm hopeful because I'm a relentless optimist. I am hopeful that when more of us realize this is exactly the kind of work waiting for our families, our children. This is the funny place where my co-author and I probably disagreed and had to agree to disagree. He believes as an engineer, someday we will be able to automate most work. I'm a humanist. I'm pretty clear that most of the work that humans do that's meaningful is, is quite distinct and complicated and very difficult to imagine it could ever be handed off to an automated process, mostly because humans won't stand for it, hopefully. Like we want Hmm. somebody who can empathize with us when something goes wrong. That's a deeply human capacity. So it's important for us all to realize that we're at the very beginning of being able to, across all sectors, organize work into task-based projects that can be picked up by anyone anywhere. So we need to agree. We need to come together. Uh, Governments, private sector, workers, workers, advocates, citizens who are consuming these, these services need to come together and say, what do we expect as the baseline for the work conditions that are producing the value the lion's share of value in an information economy. You know, it's interesting that that uh, distinction you pointed out between like what can computers do and like how good are they going to get, and then and then what can't they do, and maybe wh- like where will they not be anytime soon? Because I think people often see things like. I think even back to like Watson, IBM's Watson playing on Jeopardy or. Um, Gary Kasparov being defeated by IBM's Deep Blue, or um, I think it's Google that had is um, like uh, created a program that defeats people on the game Go. Um, but you see, like increasingly, these things pile up, and you're like, "Wow, really, Gary Kasparov? That's amazing!" You know, like these people are amazing. But you point out games are just not quite the same as life. And that's a huge, that's a huge sticking point. Uh, Yes, because I think the toughest thing is that folks designing these systems, and it is quite impressive to be able to design a system that without any intervention can beat the best player at any game. But the thing we all need to think about is a game has really clear rules. So any system that's being trained to beat a human, they not only know all the rules, they know every move that's ever been documented. 
And a human player, usually the best in the world at anything, they know all the rules and they know all the moves too, but they can't process, literally mm. go through the archive of moves right. as quickly. Right. So beating a human at a game with rules is really impressive, but it's nothing compared to life. It's nothing compared to taking care of a kid. Yeah. Right? And I think that's... Or somebody shaving their beard. Or somebody trying shaving to figure their out beard. Are they the same person. It's actually really, it's a technically hard problem to train a system to be able to work with materials like a face <laughs> or fold laundry. If you've ever, like, definitely mm. look up every YouTube about a robot folding laundry. They're hilarious <laughs> because the challenge in that moment is the challenge... It's an approximation, I should say, of the challenge of life, which is you can't control all the variables. You can't know all the rules. You don't even agree on the rules. That is the challenge that people finesse every moment they walk through the world. They're constantly working with everything they've ever learned, and they actually don't have to see this. They don't have to see a problem more than once to be able to have an idea of how to solve it. A computer can't do that. And it's so not obvious because, of course, we all, you know, we're all mystified unless we've been taught how to program at just how amazing a, a computer system can be. And, and I don't want to take away from how amazing it is, but it's right. got nothing on the average parent taking care of a kid. Um, you distinguish between companies that are more on the exploitive end when it comes to ghost work um, and companies that try to do a lot more like including of people, creating community around those people, especially since these are, this is often work that's done and can be kind of isolating. Can you just explain those differences a little bit? Yeah. So when we were researching who are these platform players, who are the companies that are producing the the opportunities for these 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 task-based jobs. You know, what are these platforms putting out there, and what are the ways in which they think about the workers themselves? We wanted to find a, a, the range of of businesses that could kind of represent this ecosystem of of platform work, and the folks who really distinguished themselves as doing the best they could for workers were doing several things. They were recognizing that many workers were gravitating to task-based work because they wanted to control their schedules. So they worked to build in ways for workers themselves to coordinate their schedules, to be able to, be able to, to build out their own schedules. They also realized workers wanted to be able to choose projects, not just be assigned projects, but be able to look at a range of projects and say, hey, I'd, I'd like to try that. Often it was a worker who wanted to maybe build out their, their design skills or try a different language, but they made sure they built in ways for people to try things they wanted to try. And then those companies were also doing something quite important, which was they were fostering connection. So the worst actors in this ecosystem are often um, not trying to be hurtful to workers. They just don't understand how much workers need to collaborate. They don't understand how much workers need to control their own schedules. And they often don't imagine that people want variety in the work they do. 
So it's it's really clear who's a good actor in this world, but you know, this ecosystem of businesses. But the bottom line is because there are no rules, you can have a good actor who's doing all the right things. And guess what? They're producing better outcomes. You get better output huh. when your workers are able to control their schedules, able to pick their... Are the big companies figuring that out or not particularly? Um, the big companies are figuring that out in that they're okay. gravitating towards the companies, the vendors, they're called, who supply okay. the labor. But the problem is it's really hard to tell what exactly constitutes that baseline. So until there's regulation in place to say, here's what everybody has to do, it's really easy mm -hmm. for a large tech company that's you know procuring labor, like it's procuring copy paper, to end up with a platform that says it's doing great things, but we have no way to audit them. So until there's a system in place to audit companies to say, yes, this, this is the work condition for the workers who work with us, there isn't a way to make sure that workers have that basic fair treatment as, as part of, you know, as part of their environment. A final question for you. Um, you have been doing um, some work that departs a little bit from from this look at ghost work, but you've talked about kind of turning the tables when it comes to the idea of ghost work. Um, what does that mean, and and what have you been working on? Yeah, so honestly, it's directly connected to what I learned from ghost work, which was one of the most important interventions that we could create as a way for workers themselves to collaborate and cooperate to offer their labor on their terms. So there's a cooperative movement that's out there. It's part of that movement. But for me, I really wanted to understand in community health care work, what would it look like to provide community health care workers with the kinds of technologies they need to be able to organize as teams and rapidly respond both through telehealth and last mile health delivery. So I've been working with a team here at Microsoft and with community-based organizations in North Carolina providing support around vaccine distribution and equity to build a toolkit for community healthcare workers so that they can answer the call for help from people who need it and can really control the terms under which they offer that help. And can you just give an example of what it would mean for like, if I was a person using that toolkit, how would it improve my life? Yeah. So the best thing for me is that this is really a toolkit built for the community-based organizations and their workers. So if you're a worker who's providing food security to somebody who's also getting a vaccine, this toolkit, and it's just the, the very first piece of the toolkit, this toolkit means that I, as a community-based organization, worker, as a community healthcare worker, can get information about that person seeking help for both food and for a vaccine, connect with them confidentially, privately, securely, mm. collect that data, and know when I go back to my organization that I'm going to be able to collect the data of many clients who are part of my community, and I can, as a community-based organization, control what happens next with that data. So I like to think mm -hmm. of them as really, hopefully, the extension of public health. 
because we really need a public health extension network, just like we had for, for education at the turn of the century. We need our healthcare systems to be rooted in the communities that need care rather than thinking everybody's going to, you know, make their way to, you know, the, the hospital on the other side of town that, that maybe doesn't literally speak their language. Mary Gray is a 2020 MacArthur Fellow. She's a senior principal researcher at Microsoft Research and the co-author of Ghost Work, How to Stop Silicon Valley from Building a New Global Underclass. Mary, thank you so much for being here. Kara, thanks so much for the chance to talk with you. And now a final word from me, and I mean a final word. After 10 years, Innovation Hub is coming to an end. And I want to thank you for listening. We have such wonderful, such amazing listeners. You know, this is an age that people often say is not super nice. But you guys send us kind and thoughtful messages all the time. I also want to thank uh, the program directors and the public radio stations around the country who have embraced this program. Thank you very much. Uh, You might be familiar with me because, you know, you hear my voice every week, but the guests that we have had on Innovation Hub have taught me so much. I probably quote them in my normal life at least twice a day. Everybody knows me as sick of it. But to me, the joy of hosting this program has been learning. And over the years, as you can imagine, we have had a special, special group of people work on the show, including Matt Purdy. Mark Filipino, Caroline Lester, Mary Dew, Asil Kibbe, Antonio Oliart, Genevieve Gilson, Doug Sugertz, David Goodman, Alan Mattis, Jane Pippick, Michelle Sweet, and Phil Rado, who said yes to the show. And then there's the current wonderful team, Elizabeth Ross, Mark Solinger, Sarah Leeson. Every chapter comes to an end, but new chapters start, and I am so excited to let you know what I'm going to be doing next. If you want to find out, you can follow me on Twitter at Kara, K-A-R-A-E, Miller. There is more to come. I'm Kara Miller. This is Innovation Hub. Thanks. You got to get up every morning with a smile on your face and show the world all the love in your heart. Then people gonna treat you better. You're gonna find, yes you will, that you're beautiful.